0: Hello everyone. My name is Cliff Smith and I'm the Washington Washington I'm the Middle East Forum's Washington Project Director. Welcome to our speaker and webinar and podcast series. Today, my guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jacob um, Soteriatis. I am pronouncing that correctly, right?
1: Absolutely, Cliff. You okay, got great.
0: It. Um, of the, um Lieutenant Colonel Um Soteriatis has a resume that is too long to list and includes substantive work at the Pentagon, although it must be said today he speaks for himself. And not for the Pentagon or any other branch of the US government. Currently, he is the Director of the Center of Futures and Intelligence at the National Intelligence University and the Director of Operations and Engagement for the NIU Intelligence Research, Education and Solutions Laboratory. He spent nearly two decades as a military intelligence officer. I personally became familiar with Lieutenant Colonel S- Soriadis's work. Um, when I read his writings on Turkey, um, which I thought were both detailed and had a great sense of how modern Turkey fit into the bigger picture of today's world affairs. Um, today, I want to discuss about his views on Turkey um, in the modern times and how that has reacted to these changes. Um, but before we get to that, let's start with a little bit of background. Uh, Turkey was founded as a secular republic in the aftermath of World War I by Kamal Ataturk. Um, under 1952, under Prime Minister Adnan, Banderas, it joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Indeed, um, Turkey's entire um, post-World War II foreign policy revolved around becoming part of the West and joining the NATO alliance. Um, In recent years, that has changed considerably, however. The Turkish government now embraces a very anti-Western orientation and a very anti-secular ideology, and acts in ways very different than it did in decades past. Um, Recently, I wrote an article discussing how Turkey had become closer to Qatar, have been closer to Pakistan and has been working in a much more Islamist direction. Um, last year in um, the national interest, Lieutenant Colonel Soteriadis and his co-author Dr. Marwa Mazid um, wrote that Turkey now embraces what they refer to as a pan-Islamist neo-Ottoman inspired ideology that will inflame racial tensions in the future. into the future. You also note in another article for the Middle East Institute um, that this, this comes at the same time as a dramatic reversal from Saudi Arabia, which had previously fostered its own version of hegemonic pan-Islamism, but had recently opted to stop that behavior. Turkey, you note, has gradually assumed this role over the past 17 years, but in a remarkably more aggressive and reckless manner. So, To start things off, let me ask you, what do you mean when you say Turkey now embraces a pan-Islamist neo-Ottoman-inspired ideology, And how has Erdogan's export of this in an aggressive manner inflamed regional tensions? Cliff, I want to say
1: thanks so much to you and the Middle East Forum for the kind invitation. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be with you all today uh, at this forum uh, and to share some thoughts with the audience uh, on, I think, what is a very relevant and, uh, frankly, a topic that we uh, can't discuss enough uh, these days in terms of the multifaceted geopolitical implications uh, that it really provokes in the region, as you've just noted. So let me say in response to your first question, uh, when we met, when we talk about a pan-Islamist neo-Ottoman ideology, um, we're talking about something that actually didn't just arrive yesterday. Uh, we're talking about the conditions of possibility uh, for this ideology that were actually set uh, actually back in the 1980s uh, under a different Uh, sort of a different uh, worldview of what uh, Ottomanism is, and there are certainly libraries filled with what that is and isn't. But for the purposes of our discussion today, um, we're referring to a a form of political Islam that's been embraced by the Turkish state, specifically under President Erdogan's leadership, uh, that really seeks uh, to portray Turkey as, and really, and, and Islam as well, as sort of the civilizational model Um, where we see uh, those two forces combining uh, to create this resonance that really has uh, a major outcome in foreign policy. And what we've seen is this assertiveness over the last 15 to 17 years, uh, where the understood norms, as you mentioned before, that uh, we've come to see in the behavior of Turkish foreign policy and the Turkish state, Uh, been completely upended uh, to the point where now we actually see, in many cases, uh, Turkey acting as more of a disruptor in the region, and the broader, not only the Eastern Mediterranean, but the Middle East, uh, rather than a force for stability. Uh, And so that's really what we're talking about, is this complex resonance uh, between socio-political elites, uh, between the state's control apparatuses, and of course between the state's leadership uh, that's actually driving this
0: uh, ideological model. Certainly. And how has Erdogan's um, export of this and the the change of other actors like Saudi Arabia, how has that changed regional politics, as it were? Well, it's
1: completely upended
0: things, Cliff. I mean, I think if we look at, for example,
1: uh, a quick snapshot in time from 2003 till the present day, um, when we look at the eastern Mediterranean itself, we see how different geopolitically that region is. Uh, we have a raging uh, a raging civil war in Libya, uh, which really has become now a proxy war uh, between Turkey and Russia. We see uh, Turkey with massive, not only military, but financial interests to the tune of, I think, about 20 billion in Libya. Um, and you've seen uh, a huge military footprint uh, by the Turkish state now, the likes of which we haven't seen freely uh, for centuries, where we have a military presence uh, in the South Caucasus now, which we saw most vividly uh, in the the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in uh, 2020. Um, We see, for example, military presence in Africa, in Somalia. Um, We see increased maritime patrols under the guise of the Mavi Vatan, the Blue Homeland Doctrine now, where we saw also in 2020 um, a huge uh, conflict that was avoided, but potential for conflict between Greece and Turkey over maritime claims and demarcation. And you also have shifting regional alliances now uh, to address, frankly, the instability that the Turkish state has created in the region. So you have now sort of this other uh, pole, if you will, that to counter this aggression, where we're seeing an alliance of Egypt, Greece, Cyprus, and Israel coming together, not only in matters of energy, Um, but also in uh, security and military affairs. Uh, Additionally, we're seeing countries like the United Arab Emirates as well take place. We had military training, joint air operations uh, take place uh, also uh, over the last year or two. Uh, And so you're seeing these regional actors align uh, in ways that are basically set up to counter what they perceive uh, as a
0: threat to their regional interests and also to their national interests. On that, You have laid out a a picture that is, um, I think, very true to the region, but is not necessarily widely understood, um, certainly by too many decision makers in Washington. You spent decades in the Department of Defense. um, And and I realize you speak for yourself. But can you describe the debate that is going on in the Department of Defense over this, or perhaps in other branches of the government, be it State Department, Congress, so on and so forth? Look, I think this is this issue becomes
1: quite problematic for many reasons. And I think that's because, as you said, Cliff, um, it is upending a status quo uh, that has been the norm in American foreign policy uh, for basically decades and decades and decades. Uh, And so the immediate connotation that one has when, when we consider Turkey from a security or foreign policy perspective is one of a country that's been grounded traditionally in the NATO alliance uh, and that's been a productive partner. And we have, to give, we have to say that that has been the case, okay? And that that, 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 that alliance uh, for security and stability in the region has been crucial to American foreign policy. Where things get difficult now is navigating uh, the events of the last two decades where we've seen interests, the interests of Turkey and the United States uh, diverge rather than converge. And we're seeing aggressive steps uh, that have really been, I think, Uh, attributed to this this neo-Ottoman ideology that we see continuing to develop. And I will say that uh, there's a misnomer to address the point that that you brought up uh, in general, that um, right now the problem could be perhaps attributed to President Erdogan's leadership and his maybe reckless foreign policy. We saw, for example, uh, a huge drop in the Turkish Lira devaluation, right? All of this issue, Uh, based on some statements that he's made and policy issues. Um, But I would submit that this actually is not necessarily uh, an Erdogan-centric issue. He certainly is is driving the train on this, and he's a major force for what's happened. Um, But if he were, for example, to go away or to to lose power, um, it's not just so easy to put all of this back in the box uh, and go back to the old ways or the old sort of familiarities that we had. Uh, with Turkey and with foreign policy. There, there have been too many commitments made now in the region. There have been simply too many actions that have been taken uh, that would almost make a return to what I think most policymakers would like to see in the region. That would make it, it actually is too complicated at this time. It's going to take a long time uh, for that return to what we uh, in the West would perceive as a normalcy uh, in Turkish foreign policy to, to happen and certainly for relations to improve.
0: That actually touches on the next question I was going to ask, and that is, you sort of talk, talked on, but maybe you can expand a little bit on, um, Do you think where do you think these debates are going in the future? I mean, you've discussed how there's so many changes and it's, this is not, you know, the, if Erdogan left office tomorrow, that wouldn't necessarily change the trajectory. So how do you see these debates playing out over the future? Do you think that... Um, Do you think people understand enough in D.C., in the Defense Department and state, so on and so forth, what has happened and what needs to do to return to relative normalcy? Or is this something that's going to take time to understand? I think there are several camps, Cliff. I think that
1: there are there are many in government that uh, perhaps have uh, have served or worked with uh, Turkey and carry with them a vision, uh, an idealistic vision of what they would like to see and maybe what they've experienced. Um, And in many cases, that. Version that, uh, that Turkey no longer exists. Uh, it's been replaced uh, by something completely different today. And I think that there are others who uh, have been better about recognizing uh, what, it, what Turkey is and what the current uh, government's policies have done and the implications uh, that it's caused, not only for US-Turkey relations, but really for the entire region. Um, this is what I would actually call, it, it's, it's really a, it's a global problem. It's no longer limited to a bilateral issue. Uh, The complications are so multifaceted for the United States, for Europe, for the European Union, for the Middle East, uh, frankly, for for Africa. This is something that, as I said, because it takes on uh, also a religious dimension, uh, where we're also seeing Turkey really assume this role uh, of promoting political Islam abroad, uh, a role, as I mentioned before, and as we've written about, um, was traditionally uh, assumed by Saudi Arabia. Um, just for example, the uh, the Imam uh, uh, Hatip schools that we've seen in Turkey, the sort of the, the religious education, the schools that actually that one of which Erdogan himself has graduated from, uh, we're seeing I think to the tune of almost six or seven billion dollars funding, uh, you know, for this religious education. We're seeing um, Erdogan himself um, embracing organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so we're seeing some this convergence uh, from a religious perspective that then gets married up with this broader uh, regionalist vision of Turkey as a great power. So this idea of strategic depth, as we've seen former foreign minister uh, Davutoglu talk about uh, in his book, of course, he's certainly fallen out of favor as well uh, with, the current, with the current government. Uh, however, I think what's relevant uh, and what we need to keep our eye on is what kinds of geopolitical futures uh, could we envision for the region? And as I mentioned before, um, if, if, for example, in 2023, when we were supposed to see uh, elections happen, if if the current opposition takes power, um, I don't believe that um, we may we may hear a lot of uh, what sounds to Western ears as pleasing rhetoric, um, but I don't think uh, we'll be able to see a complete uh, reversal of current policies simply because realities don't support them. Um, even among the opposition, um, support for uh, the purchase of the S400. Um, Uh, air defense systems that's been very controversial that Turkey purchased from Russia. Uh, even the opposition has voiced support for this at this point in time, so I don't see how we can avoid that rift in U.S. Turkey relations. Also, we have to say, um, there's a great bit of anti American sentiment in terms of mistrusting viewing the United States uh, as an unreliable partner, and that's you know, that's that's that has its roots uh in some historical issues, but more I would say more in, in a current sense, um, based off of this. Um, what's happened, uh, the rift in U.S.-Turkey relations, and also uh, some of perceptions uh, about U.S. policy. Uh, We could actually point to the fact that uh, just recently we've seen legislation passed uh, where you've got more uh, American investment and military, extended military presence in Greece. Uh, We're talking about also uh, supporting um, this idea of, um, we see the East Med Act. Uh, We're talking about the alliance between Greece Uh, Turkey, Cyprus, and Egypt, uh, from an energy and from a security perspective that the United States has also voiced support for. Um, And so I think for all of those reasons, um, it's going to be very difficult, let's say, for the day after uh, the regime, whenever that comes. Um, And that's something that we ought to be thinking about now in terms of developing aspirational futures for that relationship to frame it uh, in a way that I think is going to be beneficial uh, for both sides.
0: On a topic you uh, touched on briefly, but I'd like you to expand on, um, you, met, you mentioned in your writing and you briefly mentioned just now, sort of the, the idea of you know, pan-Islamism and their alliances with other Islamist actors. You've written about um, how close the Erdogan government is to the Muslim Brotherhood. You've also written about uh, Qatar and how Turkey and Qatar's relationship is reshaping the region. Would you talk a little bit about that and what threat it poses to US interests and the interests of other US allies?
1: Well, absolutely. I think this is, uh, you know, this is problematic uh, for many reasons. Um, because, as as we mentioned before, um, there are interests um, that are that just simply run counter to uh, a position that that helps um, American interests in the region. So, for example, uh, when we talk about um, support for the Muslim Brotherhood, when we talk about Financial support uh, the Turkey is obviously receiving from Qatar. We see uh, how this is problematic in terms of Turkey's uh, Turkey's support uh, for military action in Syria, which largely runs counter to American interests. Uh, We see what's happening in Turkey, the or excuse me, we see what's happening in Libya, uh, the destabilization uh, of that, and where we've constantly we've seen the European Union constantly call uh, for um, the removal of all foreign troops. Uh, frankly, we saw the destabilization uh, in terms of what happened in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, where we see uh, now really Russia stepping in to take uh, a decisive, I mean, it always, that South Caucasus has always been Russia's traditional sphere of influence, but now we see uh, Russia and frankly Turkey now uh, converging uh, in that region in a much more uh, palpable way. Uh, and when we talk about energy interests, certainly uh, you know expanding things like the uh, the Trans-Caspian uh, pipeline, uh, we need to think about um, what that means uh, for American energy interests in terms of what uh, you know how, how Turkey has, uh, frankly been a a, you know, a destabilizing force in the region. Um, and also, uh, I think when we talk about the the Eastern Mediterranean, frankly, this creates a rift within the NATO alliance. and it creates it opens up a front that frankly the United States uh, doesn't doesn't need at this point in time. Now when we when we saw in 2020, um, tensions come to uh, to a serious level in the eastern Mediterranean where we had um, Turkey conclude a maritime demarcation agreement with the Libyan government, uh, which of course uh, Greece has disagrees with. Um, we see now that this set the stage for a potential naval um, conflict. But what we've also seen is, um, and I don't think what we've talked enough about is what does this portend for the future of NATO? You now have France and Greece who have actually concluded, a treaty of mutual defense uh, in the face of any outward aggression, and that's clearly aimed at Turkey. There's no question. Uh, we've seen President Erdogan and uh, President Macron of France have these verbal spats. Uh, Erdogan actually said that he believed that uh, Macron was actually uh, mentally ill. I mean, this is this is this is, this is kind of rhetoric and language um, that it has been really uncharacteristic of this kind of relationship between NATO partners. Uh, we see. Um, France selling frigates and Rafale fighter aircraft now to Greece. Um, And obviously uh, we see the door being opened by recent legislation for perhaps uh, F-35 acquisition as well, uh, which obviously Turkey will not be receiving based off of what's happened uh, uh, based on the decision to purchase the S-400 from Russia. Um, There was question too about uh, F-16s as well. So all of these issues I think are tied together uh, in a way that makes the relationship uh, very fraught uh, with mistrust. Uh, and it quite so, for example, what does that mean? I don't think we've seen a lot uh, of, of thinking on this. What does it mean now for uh, members of NATO, a security alliance, to conclude treaties of mutual defense with other NATO members against a threat which comes from within the alliance? Uh, that's an important point. Uh, that I think we ought to think about and uh, and consider uh, just how far away from these established norms this policy has taken us.
0: I'm going to have time for another question or two, and then we'll get to some audience questions. If anybody sure. has any questions, they can um, put it in the Q&A. Um, we have a few, but uh, if anybody has more. Um, one question um, that I'd like to ask is one issue that's particular of interest to in the Middle East Forum is how foreign regimes um, and radical ideologies try to influence um, actors um, in the West and just in general around the world. Um, and one thing that I noticed that you discussed in, with your article the Middle East Institute was the fact that under Erdogan, um, the Turkish state has effectively co-opted the Diyanet Foundation, a government agency that was originally created by Ataturk with the intent of moderating religious practices. Instead, it has both ex, um, uh, expanded radical interpretations of Islam and pretty blatant political propaganda. We at the Middle East Forum recently published an article which discussed things that we had seen in the American Dianette to show this, you know, America itself was not immune. In fact, things that were um, going on just in Maryland a few miles outside of D.C. were part of this larger network. But as you noted, this is also in Europe, in Africa, parts of the Middle East. Um, so... Um, how do you see Turkey using um, this tool and other sorts of ideological exports as a tool of its foreign policy?
1: I think the problem, Cliff, that you rightly point out is that now they've become one and the same. Um, okay, this is co-opting uh, the Dianet to be able to communicate um, policy messages via these, you know, this 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 religious organization. And as you've pointed out, I think quite rightly, um, that has um, Wide-ranging uh, political ramifications, uh, and I mean, let's just take for example the problem of uh, religious minority rights in Turkey, which become even more exacerbated now under the current regime. Um, recently, I think last year we saw um, one of the great, uh, one of the great ancient Christian church- churches, the uh, Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, uh, in Istanbul, which uh, Ataturk actually created and made, made a museum. Uh, and one, one to, to his credit uh, based on its cultural heritage uh, and belonging basically to uh, to Turkey but also recognizing the fact that this was a major church uh, in ancient in, in, in the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christianity uh, we see now um, we, we have that now converted back into a mosque uh, which uh, they're frankly in my opinion uh, could have been more international pushback. There certainly was, uh, and and there were there were protests, and there were uh, there was widespread condemnation of that event of that event. Um, but in in real terms, um, there really hasn't been a huge political pot cost imposed upon the regime for for doing that. Um, but I think that speaks volumes to this approach, uh, which which means that instead of this secular model. Um, where you basically had uh, the Turkish military for a very, very long time uh, being the protector of the secular state. Now you've seen purges of that organization, and, and frankly, even of the political system. Uh, to where I mean, how many how many journalists now in Turkey uh, have now been jailed for voicing you know opinions? People who have actually just done nothing more than retweet uh, a political cartoon, uh, and this 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 is far ranging, not only. Uh, you know, to what what's going on in, in into the country, but also this is, this is something that we've seen being pursued outside uh, of Turkey's borders as well for Turkish citizens that criticize uh, the regime. Uh, and so to, to sort of connect that back to your question about the, the, the problems of the, uh, you know, of, of this religious uh, aspect of it is that I think it's dangerous because what it does is it creates this sort of justificatory pretext uh, based on political Islam, um, which Uh, makes these pronouncements, makes policies uh, that are that are pursued by the regime um, seem as if they have sort of a cover or a religious undertone um, to be able to be supported or gain support um, by other elements of society. Uh, And we've seen too many examples of that happening in the Middle East and other regions that is very, very problematic.
0: Now we'll get a few questions from the audience. Should there be conflict between, say, Israel and Iran or U.S. and Iran, um, how do you think Turkey would play into that at this time?
1: I think this is a really, really challenging issue because obviously, um, as we've seen, you know, negotiations continuing on uh, trying to resolve what is admittedly a wicked problem of uh, the question of Iran obtaining nuclear weapons um certainly um i, I this would be uh, i think an area where uh, turkey would seek to uh, perhaps gain leverage uh, in any kind of uh, negotiation uh, and i think we've also seen a turn recently where turkey is attempting to try and make some sort of an overture towards israel to repair what is a very damaged relationship right now um but the extent to which i mean it's very difficult to obviously speak in uh, Uh, In counterfactuals. Um, But uh, clearly, uh, what we've seen is, um, I think, to date, the current regime not acting as a responsible actor that creates stability in the region, um, but actually is through many, many actions, like I mentioned, in Syria, in the South Caucasus, in the Eastern Mediterranean. uh, I I think that... uh, should it come, and we hope that it certainly does not come to that kind of of a conflict at all. Um, um, I don't know uh, the extent to which um, the United States is going to be able to rely uh, on support from the regime.
0: Another question from uh, audience member David Levine. Um, I'm going to abbreviate a little bit. But he basically says he wrote a book decades ago that discussed the potential for change in Turkey based on the rise of the Anatolian part Versus the more European part, um, he asked, how did the how did the generation of Islamists gain loyalty within this current generation of Turks, and why didn't the philosophy of secularism take hold? Um, and I guess I should add, I mean, do you think that's the case? Do you think that uh, an Islamist philosophy has taken a hold of the masses of Turkey, or just enough? Um, you know, was it sort of overlooked for a while? And uh, yeah, how would you explain that transformation?
1: I think in order to answer that question, we have to dissect um, what ideology means today in the 21st century and move past our antiquated understanding from the Cold War, where we sort of, you know, pin things as democratic or communist. And today, we want to do that as well. With we saw the democracy summit now, where we basically are labeling again democratic or authoritarian regimes. Um, when we talk about something as multifaceted as as Turkey and what's happening, how do you explain? How does one explain this shift uh, of a secular country, a secular oriented regime to now uh, overturning that norm in a very short span of time? Well, number one, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I would argue that in order to create the secular republic, uh, there needed to be some sort of a, um, you know, you can't just eliminate, Islam was never necessarily eliminated uh, from Turkish society. However, uh, it, you know, what, what needed to happen was this process of uh, cleansing, uh, according to the regime at the time, uh, the Turkish nation of its uh, religious minorities. And so you have this, the roots uh, in a lot of what has happened actually was back in the early 20th century where we saw uh, now recognized by the American government genocide of the Armenians uh, and probably less recognized the genocide of the Syrians uh, uh, and also of ethnic Greeks uh, in the uh, in, in Turkey today when we when we talk about political ideology we have to really define it differently and I would submit that we ought to define ideology as the way in which ideas become material and how these material formations actually translate into foreign policy that's a different value proposition okay when we have a country like Turkey we have these, this resonance between many actors, between the general population, okay? You've got the socio-political elites and then the control apparatuses of the state. Uh, and what we've seen is slowly, or, well, slowly in, I guess, in in, in relative terms, uh, you've had uh, initially Erdogan teaming up um, with uh, Gulenists to actually uh, move, uh, move this trend more towards a, an Islamic, uh, political orientation and, and worldview. Um, and then, of course, when, um, uh, when a lot of that opposition, secular opposition, was out of the way, uh, you saw the rift happen between Erdogan and Gülen now. Uh, we saw that the coup happen in 2016. And throughout all of this, the opportunities were taken uh, to, uh, to change the presidential system itself within Turkey uh, to now uh, Erdogan having Uh, uh, wide sweeping powers in particular over the judiciary uh, in Turkey which is a huge problem uh, and really not not a real check on his power Uh, and but as I mentioned before the erosion of the role of the Turkish military uh, as the guarantor of of that secular republic um, because frankly um, that check and balance on power doesn't exist anymore Uh, and so when you have all of that combined with I think a dangerous tendency uh, to mix in this political Islam uh, with Turkish nationalism with aggressive foreign policy, uh, it really creates a dilemma because now forces have been awakened uh, in Turkish society uh, that we see are spinning out of control. And those actions, so what's come out of that uh, are what we are dealing with today, which is now uh, when people speak of uh, Turkey as an ally in both NATO and in here uh, in the United States, uh, there certainly isn't the same sort of general consensus. There's you new know, articles and books uh, and discussions being had on why this is a huge problem uh, instead of a force for stability in the region. Um, and so, you know, this is certainly not uh, you know not a simple process or not an overnight uh, not an overnight occurrence. Um, but this has been something that very systematically has been occurring. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned before, even if the current uh, government comes out of power, it's not something we can just put back in the box and is going to be a problem uh, well into the future.
0: And with that, there are several dozen more questions we could ask and a lot more issues. We could talk but a lot more in depth, but I think that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, all of you. And thank you, Lieutenant Colonel, for joining us to discuss your views. I uh, really appreciate your time and uh, Happy holidays to all who celebrate. Thank you. Thanks, Cliff. Happy holidays to you and to everyone else. Take care.